Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Today we'll hear from people who make their living on the water, like a longtime riverboat captain. My dad always said the river will be there, so that's, that's what I've chosen to make my living at. Do you ever feel like you get a different view of West Virginia than most people? Well, yeah. I mean, I see the seasons change. Do winter come? I see the see the you know, the hollers turn gold and stuff. I see that every year from up here. And we'll meet a man who's been canoeing for 17 months. He recently made a stop in West Virginia. I sort of have to, to, to find my, my landlubber legs when I, when I step onto a dock like this uh, at times. But, but for the most part, uh, I actually feel pretty strong. You'll find these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. We start off our show today along the Kanawha River. Canoeer Neil Moore is 17 months into an adventure to paddle 22 rivers. He's spent most of his adult life abroad, but he wanted to explore America, his home. So in 2020, a month before the pandemic shut things down, he started his journey in a canoe in Oregon. Moore plans to wrap up his trip this December at the Statue of Liberty in New York. The trip will cover 7,500 miles, and recently he's been making his way through Appalachia. Here's a recording he made as he was approaching West Virginia. A little status update. Uh, I am right now at the confluence of the Big Sandy River and the Ohio, which I continue to paddle up against. Uh, what this represents for me right here is unfortunately a fond farewell to the great state of Kentucky, which is on this side of the Big Sandy. So, au revoir, Kentucky, and hello to West Virginia, right there. Uh, it's my very first time to lay eyes on West Virginia. I've been looking forward to this view uh, for the entire journey. Our producer, Roxy Todd, met up with Moore as he made a brief stop in Charleston, West Virginia, on the edge of the Kanawha River. Neil, you've been on the river 17 months now, and I find that really incredible. How are you feeling physically, emotionally, and mentally? So the one truism that, that I've learned vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the long-distance paddler friends that I have is that your, your body adapts to the river. And what I can say uh, from my experience with this journey is that I'm really moving from strength to strength. Uh, I feel that, that my body is getting stronger. I'm, I'm clearer mentally. I'm positive. I sort of have to, to, to find my, my landlubber legs when I, when I step onto a dock like this uh, at times. But, but for the most part, uh, I actually feel pretty strong. But you are in the same position day after day. I imagine you have to get out and stretch. Do you get cramps? Uh, that's a nice thing about traveling in an open canoe is that I can move my body around so I can sort of lay down on top um, I can stretch my legs uh, I can absolutely step out of the canoe but for many days I'm in the canoe from uh, from first light until last light so what do you eat how do you stock up on rations it might sound crazy but I actually I don't know how to cook uh, my mom didn't cook and my grandmother didn't cook uh, before her and so I've lived my life sort of with street food uh, overseas in Africa and East Asia. And now coming here, I, I've learned the art of uh, freeze-dried food, that perfect blend with the right amount of water. And, and for, for evening time, I'll have a, a freeze-dried uh, dinner. And then during the day, I have lots and lots of uh, snacks, from, from builder bars to, to granola to dry cereal as well. But, uh, but for right now, I'm, uh, I believe from, from here until New York City, it's just that there's lots and lots of communities. So I can pull my canoe up, find a grocery store. Sometimes if, if a push comes to shove, I can step into a marina and find the basics. And I understand you have a host this evening. Is that something that often you have somebody that offers to put you up? Yes, we have what's called river talk. And so when, when you meet people, uh, in my case on the Ohio River downstream, they have friends, they have family upstream uh, where you're headed. And so they call ahead. There's a gentleman here who, who's actually paying for my room uh, at the hotel here. And then uh, I'm planning to, to have lunch and, and, and also supper with uh, him and his family tonight. And so I have to ask too, how do you go to the bathroom? <laughs> That's a fair question. So I have a, I have a shovel 
inside the canoe. And whenever a, a kid sees the canoe, the, the, the first question that the, the kid will ask is, what's the shovel for? <laughs> and so, so basically, I, I like to make camp on islands. We, we have islands uh, on this river. We have islands on, on the Ohio as well. And you just sort of let, let nature take its course. And, and, and then uh, make sure you're, you're far enough away from the water. You, you dig a hole, you, you do your business, and then you cover it up, and away you go. So with number one, I have a, a, a carved out jug that I use for bailing. So when, when the rain really comes down, I, I can scrape the water out. I have sponges as well. But then uh, w one trick that we learn as long distance paddlers is you can use that to, to, to go number one, dump it over the side, and then sort of uh, clean it out right there as well. If push comes to shove, you've got a backup option. That's right. Okay. so. Why are you doing this wild journey? I mean, 22 rivers, that's a pretty extreme way to spend a couple of years of your life, right? Yeah. So sort of the, the migratory nature of the Appalachian experience um, sort of echoes what I'm trying to do as well, which is sort of to, to reconnect with my home. And for, for me, looking back to my home country, the chance to experience it, to come back and experience and explore really my own backyard uh, from sea to shining sea uh, was something that, that just really appealed to me. And what I've learned is it's absolutely possible to connect yourself across the country by water. And it's a, it's a remarkable way to, to really see the land. I'm sure you see a lot of beautiful things along the river. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, there's wildness and there's nature when you're down at water level, uh, literally all the way around you. There was a time on the Missouri River last year when I was coming down the Missouri River and uh, past the confluence of the Yellowstone. And there was this, uh, this beach of, of willow uh, to my river left uh, descending right there between Montana and North Dakota. And the sun was going down. I was looking for a place to, to bed down for the night to camp wild. I saw this opening with this beach, and at, at first it just took my breath away. I wasn't sure whether they were, they were mountain lion cubs or exactly what they were. And, the, and then I realized, no, these are coyote cubs. And there were three of them, and they were just so excited. They were running the length of the beach together. They were rolling around. They were having a whale of a time. And, uh, and for me, that, that was just really beautiful. That right there was a, a, a state nature preserve, and so they were safe. And, um, and it was just something that, that, that sort of just, just spoke to the, the wildness inside of me as well. So starting in Oregon, can you, phys you can't physically go continuously. There are some places where you have to get out and travel and land, right? Correct, yes. Yeah. So I, I have these expedition wheels uh, when that happens. So most of the waterways connect. I had to make my way over the Continental Divide uh, there in the very middle of Montana. So what, what I do is I, I, I place the wheels underneath the canoe, I strap them in, I put all my stuff inside. I have a fall harness that I, I step my limbs through in a shipping rope and I, I get on the side of the highway and just pull like a mule to, to connect these waterways. And then when I get to the next waterway, then it, it's a real thrill. Holy cow, you are physically pulling your canoe along the highway for several miles? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> so Wow, so how do you get in shape for that? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you don't look at it as sort of as, uh, as the, the Cotton Divide is 60 miles. Uh, what you look at it is sort of a small, small sort of spurt. So I, I'm going from the base in western Montana up to, for example, a little town called Avon that has the Avon Cafe. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to the Avon Cafe. From the Avon Cafe, it's a day's march to get to the historic saloon, the Spotted Dog Saloon, right up there near the top of the pass. And then from there, the following day, to, to, to find the energy to, to make my way to the very top. From the top, then now you're looking down, in that case, to, to the capital city of Montana, to Helena, Montana, making my way down the mountain to find uh, the, the Missouri River. Wow. You know, as you know, here in America, we have quite a history of this pioneer masculine identity. Um, there are a number of people who, mostly men, have done these kind of wild trips, become, you know, 
pioneers even in the 20th and 21st century and I mean I guess I just wonder at the end of the day like why do you do it I mean what is it about the American man that drives people to such extremes it's sort of the, the idea of, of, of pushing yourself pushing yourself out into the wildness we have the, the childhood story that we all know and love uh, uh, where the wild things are and I, from the time I was a child, I really liked the idea of, of putting yourself in a small craft like young Max and going out into the unknown. And part of stepping into the wildness is that you also uh, you realize that you can embrace the wildness inside of yourself as well. The realization being that the monster, more often than not, is inside of us. And so to try to tame that monster and, and to try to uh, see, your, see your way through, it's, it's, really, it's really quite a challenge. One more note is that, as you say, the, the, the white male generally um, uh, are the people who attempt this sort of thing. Uh, for me, it's really important. Part of what I'm trying to do is to, is to highlight and sort of give a nod to the history of the indigenous American people. It was important for me, uh, for, for one of the first stories on this journey, to, to stop and, and to listen and to learn, to learn the wisdom of the Native American people, but also to really see a cross-section of this country as well, to, uh, to stop off and to, and to learn and to listen uh, to the, the African American experience, especially during this time. Um, the Latino experience as well, and, and, and really, really the, the immigrant experience uh, for so many of us. By the time I, I get to the Statue of Liberty, my thinking is that it's really, it's the story of all of us. When you add the, these threads and when you sort of interweave these threads, you, you'll have this tapestry. And the, the beauty and, and the strength and the courage of this land is our diversity. And so as a white male, to, to make my way through and to listen, to put my preconceived ideas completely to the side, to step in and to listen, to really listen to people, it's something, it's something that's it's a powerful concept uh, uh, in my life and, and makes for, uh, for uh, an incredibly rich journey. On your website, you say you're doing this to come face to face with America's soul. When you look at America's soul, what do you see? I see, especially this last year when, when, when times have been tough for a whole lot of people, I see uh, empathy. I see uh, one of these threads that, that, that we all have in common, uh, I believe, as Americans and really as, as a world uh, as a whole as well, is that when times get tough, we roll up our sleeves and we look out for the people around us. So the flip side of that is when things are going gangbusters, when the economy is just wonderful, we tend to just by human nature to be inward looking, I believe. But in hard times, um, our, our friends, our community uh, become family and, uh, and, and, and people, people look out for each other. And I've seen that and documented that right the way across the country. Well, I haven't been on the river the past year. Um, and I agree there is a lot of empathy, but there's a lot of animosity for people on the opposite side of the political aisle. There's a lot of denial of science. There's a lot of tension, racial tension right now in our country. And I do agree with you, there's empathy, but I have to be the devil's advocate there and say, you know, we are at a really hostile time in our country too, right? Yeah, absolutely. We all know um, what divides us politically and it's dividing families, it's dividing communities as well. Part of what my journey is all about is, is not for me to try to make it right, but, but to come through and, and to look for the good. You know, you're not from Appalachia, but we are here in Appalachia where we've struggled with high rates of poverty, with high rates of diseases of despair, suicide, substance abuse. We've struggled with a lot. And often people talk about Appalachian resilience as, you know, something that's helped people get through hard times. However, we're at a crossroads in our economy here in Appalachia and across the country. And we really, I think, are trying to really see what is ahead economically for people here in West Virginia. Are we going to keep making, you know, depending on coal, are we going to move beyond that? And I think 
across the country, I think the pandemic has shown that the poorest of the poor and the working class are are not thriving. Uh, people are living paycheck to paycheck. Is there anything, you know, from your bird's eye view of being an expat, of being along the river, that you see as some sign of hope that maybe we're, we're missing something that could answer these huge <laughs> looming questions for our future? How do, how do we move beyond all this? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a huge question, a uh, question mark uh, for a lot of people, for a lot of families. One, one beautiful thing about river towns and about places in the nation like Mississippi and like West Virginia that, that outsiders might sort of label as hard luck. I think uh, people who live along a, uh, the banks of a river, these old river towns, they have a certain grit. They have seen uh, boom times and they've seen bust. And they find the wherewithal to see themselves through. You look at this river right here, the, the Great Kanawha. Folks along this river have told me, um, going back, uh, their fathers and their grandfathers, multiple generations, where, where, where coal was really king here as well. And now we see less and less of it. For a number of river communities through Kentucky, through Tennessee, that I've just recently been through, uh, many communities are looking to nature for the future of, for example, river trails that can incorporate hiking and biking and paddling, both kayaking and canoeing as well, and sort of stepping onto the wild side, celebrating that beautiful sort of blend between town and country. It's really positive, and, uh, and there's some possibilities there, I believe. Well, Neil, I wish you safe and speedy travels on the next leg of your journey. And thank you so much for talking with me and uh, for stopping here in West Virginia. I, um, I wish you well. Thank you so much, Roxy. Our producer, Roxy Todd, met up with Moore as he made a brief stop in Charleston, West Virginia on the edge of the Kanawha River. Neil Moore hopes to continue paddling over the next five months. His goal is to reach the Statue of Liberty by December. We've posted photos from his journey on our website, wvpublic.org. Moore's journey got us thinking about an episode we originally aired back in 2019, which is all about rivers. So we decided, hey, this is a good time to listen back to that show. First things first, though, I have a question. If you've ever been to Morgantown, West Virginia, you've probably driven over or near the Monongahela River. Or some people pronounce it Monongahela. So which is the correct way to say it? And where does the name originate anyway? We'll hear the answer after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Okay, so if you've been listening to Inside Appalachia for some time, you might remember that we used to do a regular segment called What's in a Name, where we explore the history and folklore of Appalachian towns and their names. Well, we thought we'd listen back to one of our favorite stories from this series. It's about the name of a 130-mile river that flows from northern West Virginia to Pittsburgh. It all started when we realized people pronounced the river's name differently. The name comes from uh, one of several interpretations from some American Indian 
words that I can't pronounce for you, <laughs> but which translate into place of many landslides or high banks or bluffs falling down in places. That's Kelly Bridges, the public affairs officer for the Mon National Forest, which is also named after the Mon River. Now, most people just say the Mon when referring to the forest or the river. It's easier than saying the full 11-letter word. But if you call the Mon National Forest Service, this is what you hear. Thank you for calling the United States Department of Agriculture, Monongahela National Forest. Tara Landevier is the tourism director for Randolph County, which includes much of the Mon Forest. I pronounce it Monongahela, but my mom, I asked her the other day, and she says Monongahela. Tara also asked her co-workers. The executive director pronounces it Monongahela, and his secretary pronounces it Monongahela, and the Cheat Ranger District uh, Ranger, Troy Wowski, he pronounces it Monongahela. So this got us thinking, is there a correct way to say the name? The word originates from the Lenape language spoken by the Delaware tribe of Indians, a tribe that likely passed through northern West Virginia and southern Pennsylvania hundreds of years ago. We spoke with Jim Rementer, who's the language director for the tribe. The proper Lenape pronunciation is Manaungihila. But before learning the Lenape language, Jim pronounced it differently. I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, and I always heard and said uh, Monongahela. And that's not that uncommon. We asked people around northern West Virginia and southern Pennsylvania how they pronounce it. Here's Grant Rumble, a Morgantown local. It's the Monongahela River. Yeah, Monongahela. My name is Nikki Tennant. I say Monongahela. That's just what I've always called it. I probably was taught that way. So there's Monongahela, Monongahela, and Monongihela. But there's one other way people say it in southern Pennsylvania, where the town is named after the river. Here's local Diana Barber. It is Monongahela. Yeah, Hela, yeah, Monongahela. So maybe there's no right way to say it, but there is the original way. Again, here's Jim Rementer with the Lenape pronunciation. Let us know if there's a name of a place you're curious about in Appalachia, and we might look into it as part of our occasional series, What's in a Name? Send us a tweet at in Appalachia. Next, we head back out to the Kanawha River to ride a coal barge. Amherst Madison is a river barge company based in West Virginia, and for most of their history, they've made the majority of their money towing coal barges. But a downturn in coal production meant the company had to look for other ways to stay afloat. Back in 2019, Roxy Todd talked with some of the people at Amherst Madison about how they see the future of the riverboat industry. And while she expected to talk economics with them, the conversation took an unexpected turn. When I hopped aboard the Dream of G Woods at dawn, I didn't imagine that I'd be chatting with people about how the river industry is connected to the future of the planet. I certainly didn't imagine this would become a story about how people interact with the natural environment. I got your buddy on here. We're going to come down there and get a bologna sandwich. You got any bologna? Come on. Bring on. Marvin L. Wooten is the captain of this boat. He started this job in 1979. I had two job offers the same day. And I took this job. And my dad always said the river will be there, so that's, that's what I've chosen to make my living at. Today, he's towing five barges of coal along the river, a load of more than 8,000 tons. A captain earns about five to six hundred dollars a day, usually more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. I made a good living. But it's not just the money that keeps Marvin working here after 40 years. It's also the camaraderie he feels for his crew and the rest of the men who work with him along this river. I want to go where somebody knows me by name. And if you, they call them a mom and a pop place. And that's about what this is like, mom and a pop. You're like family here. 
he shows me an article in a magazine featuring his boss, Charlie Jones. Good river man. Treats his people with respect. When I'm on dry land, I go to meet Charlie in his office. One of the managers of this company, Alan Hall, introduces me. He doesn't get around as well as he used to. You know, he's 101 now. Charlie! Alan. Hello. Got some of these folks from public broadcasting that want to chat with you, so. Charlie sits behind his desk inside a sparse office furnished with practical secondhand furniture. This company has been in his family for over a hundred years. He says he feels lucky to live this long and admits the days would feel boring without work to keep him busy. Because all the people that you know are gone. You can't talk to your old buddies, call them up on the phone, they're gone. He isn't interested in retiring. He says he'd rather spend his days doing something other than eating or playing golf. That just never appealed to me. I thought I'd like a little wider scope than that. He says he has faith that his riverboat company will survive, but warns that they need to diversify. They won't always be able to survive by transporting coal. If you look at all the, all the companies that have tried to survive by doing the same thing, they haven't been able to make it. Already, his company has taken on more jobs shipping rocks, chemicals, and doing construction work along rivers and ports throughout the East Coast. They have jobs in Nashville and in Cairo, Illinois. They've diversified, Charlie says, largely because his company had to downsize a few years ago when the coal industry took a big hit. He blames the Obama administration for that. President Obama started this crusade of shutting down coal mines. He's referring to environmental regulations that put restrictions on the emissions from coal-fired power plants. At this point in our conversation, Charlie surprises me. He says that even though he doesn't agree with the way these regulations were rolled out, he says he does believe we have to clean up our air. He doesn't call himself an environmentalist, but a pragmatist. Are we concerned about the quality of the air? Well, let's do something about it. We're not doing anything about it right now. I'd say there's a big challenge ahead of us. He says he thinks the planet has a limit and points out that in his lifetime, the population across the globe has exploded. I think you just got to be practical. You can't keep loading the planet up with people unless you do something with the toxicity they produce. And he says this includes trying to reduce emissions from boats or possibly even changing the type of fuel they use to power their fleet that currently use diesel. But he says Amherst Madison is looking to try to adapt to a renewable source of fuel one day. Charlie says he feels like most people ignore the river shipping industry when they talk about infrastructure or transportation. And very few people know anything about it particularly the politicians. Infrastructure along the waterways is managed through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. There's also been a major change in how Charlie is managing the finances of his family's business. A few years ago, when his son, who was going to take over the family business, died from cancer, Charlie decided to turn over the ownership of the company to his 300 employees. As of this year, his employees all share in the fate and in the profits. Back on the towboat, Captain Marvin Wooten is cautiously optimistic about this new redistribution of the company's profits. I'm, an, I'm 60 years old, and I probably won't see a lot of rewards from it, but I've got one boy downstairs that's 19 years old. He sticks around here till he's 35, 40 years old. He'll, he'll reap the rewards of it, and I think it's a good thing if everything goes the way they're Hoping it will. It should be a good thing for the employee. Like Charlie Jones, Marvin says he's not interested in retiring anytime soon. He says he would miss the crew, the people he works with, as well as the views. As we pass the Marmette Locks and Dam, he points out an osprey, which has a nest nearby. He keeps a pair of binoculars handy. Lately, he's also begun to see more bald eagles. I think there's before you can really see good on this river. They're starting to come back. You used to not see them at all. See a lot of wildlife out here. Do you get, do you ever feel like you get a different view of West Virginia than most people? Well, yeah, I mean, I see the seasons change. Do winter come? I see the, see the, you know, I have a 
the hollers turn gold and stuff. I see that every year from up here. As we continue downstream, pushing thousands of tons of coal to a power plant, I look around at the mist coming up over the mountains. I think of all the people being born now, and I wonder what will be left for them here on the river. And if riverboats are still around 100 years from now, what will they be carrying downriver? For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd, reporting from the Kanawha River. Can you do it again for the recorder? Oh, yeah. If you want the whistle, I'll blow the whistle. You ready? to report that Charlie Jones, the president of Amherst Madison, passed away in 2019, just a couple months after the story originally ran. He was 101 years old. Today's show is all about how we interact with water and our rivers. We depend on our rivers for survival, for recreation, and for transportation. Rivers aren't just a part of our landscape, they're also a part of our economic system. But sometimes those economic drivers are actually what cause pollution and make our rivers unsafe. That was the case in Kingston, Tennessee in 2008. More than a billion gallons of coal ash flooded several homes and contaminated the Emory River. Coal ash is a byproduct that builds up when power companies produce electricity from coal. Only recently have scientists realized the scope of the long-term health effects of the spill in Kingston. The story was the focus of the first episode of a podcast called Broken Ground. It originally aired in 2019. I woke up to the awfulest noise and sound that uh, I can imagine. Millions of tons of ash and sludge came pouring out. The spill was a hundred times larger than the Exxon Valdez. The prevailing myth is that it's Arsenic levels more than 100 times the acceptable amount. In Kingston, Tennessee, efforts to clean up a giant spill of coal ash are going day and night. There is nothing to warn these workers. There's not signs, there's not pamphlets, there's nothing. The eyes was burning, the headaches, the coughing up of that jelly junk. And now they're sick and dying, and no one will take responsibility for it. This is Broken Ground, a podcast about environmental stories in the South and the people unearthing them. I'm Claudine Abade McElwain, and before I jumped headfirst into environmental issues, I was a producer and editor for more than a decade at NPR. I worked on really tight deadlines, but the kind of information I dig into now can take months and sometimes years to unravel. In this episode, we go digging for the story of coal ash. That's the toxic substance left over when coal is burned to make electricity. In America, we make about 130 million tons of it a year. It's enough to fill a million train cars. If you've never thought about coal ash or where it ends up, you're not alone. I never had. And I don't think that the Copeland family ever thought about it either. And they lived right across the water from a coal-fired power plant in Kingston, Tennessee. That plant was run by the Tennessee Valley Authority. They're better known as TVA. And it was making tons of coal ash every day. You think that they know what they're doing and that uh, everything's safe, that they're keeping an eye on it. That's Chris Copeland in a 2008 interview. He grew up fishing, swimming, playing on the Swan Pond, right there next to the coal-fired power plant. He planned on living there the rest of his life, raising his two daughters there, growing old there. And then everything changed three days before Christmas in 2008. I woke up to the, the awfulest noise and sound that uh, I can imagine. I could hear crashing and popping, the uh, noise. The wind was incredible. Uh, it seemed like it generated its own wind. 
I mean, imagine that. It's the middle of the night. The power's out. So Chris Copeland throws on his clothes and he scrambles outside. Didn't have any lights back there, so I got in the car and drove in the backyard and shined the headlights in the backyard. And it was just unbelievable. I mean, clumps of earth as big as our house were in the, in the cove behind us. Those clumps of earth that he's describing are actually huge mounds of coal ash. They'd come to be known as ash bergs. But he calls 911 and says there's a mudslide. From County 911. Yes, uh, I'm over at Swan Pond and there's a, a heck of a mudslide or something that came through our backyard. I mean, there is unbelievable. The whole, we live on a cove back here and it is full of mud. Other neighbors start calling. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. Finally, emergency responders head to the scene. All units responding to Swan Pond Circle. Seems to be an officer advising the dikes have fallen, the dikes have fallen. She's saying the dikes have fallen. What she means is that a six-story dirt wall that's meant to keep the coal ash sludge on the power plant property and out of the river has given way. I want to stop here for a minute and ask an obvious question that I asked when I first learned about coal ash ponds. Why would utility companies tempt fate by putting coal ash on the edge of a river? It seems like a pretty dangerous thing to do. But when I learned more about power plants, I understood why. Power plants are built near water because they need lots of it to operate. River water is often key to keeping a power plant cool. Coal ash, a byproduct of burning coal, accumulates quickly. And shipping it to a landfill costs more than keeping it on site. So most power plant operators choose to leave it where it is and instead store the coal ash in open-air, water-filled dirt pits. It's called wet storage. And to this day, hundreds of power plants across the country do this. And that was the same method used at the Kingston Fossil Plant. Though the ash pond at Kingston had passed a TVA inspection seven months earlier, the 60-foot dirt wall gave way overnight. It released nearly 50 years' worth of coal ash into the Emory and Clinch rivers. The next day, everyone would see just how epic of a disaster it was, and the news coverage would demonstrate that. Millions of tons of ash and sludge came pouring out when a dike at a coal plant gave way this week. An unnatural disaster along the Clinch River, a spill of sludge. Releasing a tidal wave of coal sludge into the area. The ash coats a half mile square, sometimes as deep as 10 or 12 feet. The spill was 100 times larger than the Exxon Valdez, and it was all coal ash. Relatively speaking, the homeowners were lucky. A dozen homes were swamped by ash and three were destroyed, but no one was injured or killed. They were lucky that it was the middle of the night in winter. Had it been summer, a nice day when people might have been playing in the pond, things could have gone so differently. As this disaster unfolds, people across the country, like the people in Kingston, are learning what coal ash is. They're learning that EPA didn't regulate this hazardous waste, even though as far back as 1980, Congress was asking the agency if it should. NPR reporter Elizabeth Shogren interviewed Matt Hale, the head of the EPA's solid waste office, about this lack of oversight. So basically, EPA has been studying this problem for 28 years, is that right? That's right, yeah. Why has it taken so long? There's been a considerable amount of technical work. Simply, the process has required this amount of time. Environmentalists like Eric Schaefer, head of the Environmental Integrity Project, call BS on all of this. The prevailing myth is that it's safe. We have EPA sort of buying into that for many years and really refusing to regulate this material for what it is, which is highly toxic ash that leaches metals like arsenic and cadmium and mercury into drinking water and into rivers and creeks. And so now, as homeowners in Kingston are actually learning what's in the coal ash, they are understandably starting to freak out. They're hearing that it has things in it like mercury, cadmium, chromium, selenium, aluminum, antimony, barium, boron, chlorine, cobalt, nickel, thallium, and vanadium. Heavy metals like these, even trace amounts, lead to health problems, which is why it's shocking when TVA's Anda Ray, who was their environmental executive at the time, goes on to 60 Minutes and basically equates coal ash to dirt. I'd say that the constituents, the things that are in the coal ash, are the same things that are naturally occurring in soil and rock. So is it like 
dirt? Would you say that? Would you say that sentence? That stuff is like dirt? Uh, it, that's, that ash material is higher than dirt in two areas, and that is arsenic and thallium. Let's talk about arsenic and thallium. Arsenic causes skin lesions and cancer. It's linked to heart disease and diabetes. Thallium can cause problems with the nervous system, headaches, fatigue, sleep disorders. People in Kingston are starting to talk. What would happen if this stuff got into their drinking water? So four days after the spill, with the Tennessee Valley Authority's PR machine up and running, spokesman John Moulton assures residents. Our sampling uh, has determined that there's been no indication that the water would not meet drinking water standards. I'm not sure what he meant by no indication, but soon officials were flip-flopping from day to day as to whether the local water was safe to drink. Understandably, Kingston residents were becoming skeptical. Then the mayor of Kingston, Troy Beats, decides he's going to set his community's mind at ease during a press conference by pulling a little stunt. This is a cup of Kingston City water that came from my house and out of my tap, and I just want to drink it for you right here. And I'm going to be fine. Mayor Beats hoped his city would bounce back quickly, and TVA implied it would. Any estimate as to how long mm-hmm. it would take to clean all this up? They are being fairly optimistic at this point. They're hoping to have the entire area cleaned up within six weeks. They have if you look at the photos from the time of the spill, six weeks is insane. Six weeks was never going to happen. It doesn't matter how many dump trucks they had working around the clock. The stuff was deep, and it was everywhere. In the end, it didn't take weeks or even months. It took years, six years, before the EPA declared that the job was good enough. And though much of the coal ash was shipped to landfills in Alabama and Georgia, TVA said 500,000 tons was too hard to remove from the river. And so it's still there today. As for the cost of the six years of cleanup, $1.7 billion, which utility customers in Tennessee are still paying for. But there are people who had to pay a much higher price. Earlier we said that people in Kingston were so lucky no one died because of this coal ash spill. Well, that's no longer true. There's going to be a lot of widows, a lot of widowers. It doesn't matter what I report, and it doesn't matter what happens in this case. There's going to be a lot of people whose families are just going to suffer. That's Jamie Satterfield. She's an award-winning investigative reporter for the Knoxville News Sentinel. And she's been covering the story of the workers who cleaned up the Kingston coal ash spill. When the spill first happened, there was a crush of media. There was a crush of environmental groups. All of the focus was on the community, the impact on the community. No one, including my own news organization, cast a glance over at the workers. So we're writing stories that this stuff might be terribly dangerous. It might be, you know. Um, but nobody is going, why aren't those workers in suits, you know? Why is the EPA guys all tie out? And the workers aren't. Nobody questioned that. They didn't have any protective gear when they were working out there? No, none at all. I mean, you know, your basic hard hat, your, sh- you know, shiny vest and blue jeans and T-shirts. That's what they were working in. Directly after the December spill, EPA workers show up in their Tyvek hazmat suits to assess the damage. They do some testing and they become concerned for the safety of workers who are going to be knee deep in coal ash day after day. But by February, the EPA turns the cleanup job over to TVA. And TVA brings on a contractor called Jacobs Engineering to help. And now that Jacobs was managing the coal ash removal, the workers' safety was in their hands. But Jamie says the workers were kept in the dark. They were never told that it was dangerous. They were told that there was nothing wrong with the stuff, that they could eat a pound of it a day and still be safe. Well, that just on its face didn't make sense, right? Because what I had discovered is the American Coal Ash Association doesn't even make that kind of claim. I thought, surely, to goodness, a responsible government contractor is not going to lie in that fashion. When you first started looking into the cases of these workers, were you skeptical? Yes, I was skeptical. And of course, as an investigative reporter, I always go into an investigation 
um, with this idea that this is probably not true. Um, it just makes me look a little harder at things. And um, so I was skeptical. I needed proof. So by the third interview, um, I got it. Uh, a worker had secretly videoed um, conversations with supervisors out on that site uh, in which the supervisors could be heard very clearly telling them it, that their breathing problems were pollen, not the ash, that this stuff was safe. I don't think it's the ash because I've got the same allergy problems that I've never had before, and I talked to my doctor and it's not the ash. It's the pollen this year. is horrible. It's the pollen. Give it a couple more weeks. Take an Allegra or two. There were secret recordings about them being told that if they pressed this issue, if they demanded protective gear, they would lose their jobs. You think I'd hang myself? Uh, yeah. yeah. And bear in mind, this is good money for these people. These are working people, and this is good money. TVA pays well. Don't. Don't what? Don't hang yourself with your own Once I got those videos, I was off to the races. That was investigative reporter Jamie Satterfield. Her reporting into the aftermath of the 2008 coal ash spill in Kingston, Tennessee, was part of an episode of the Broken Ground podcast. It's produced by the Southern Environmental Law Center. It was hosted and created by Claudine Abade McElwain. She's now with the New York Times. We've posted a link to hear more from the Broken Ground podcast on our website, wvpublic.org. It's not just people who are affected by water pollution. The rivers and creeks throughout central Appalachia are home to hundreds of species of freshwater mussels. In fact, the Tennessee River Basin alone has more species than Africa, and more than China and Europe combined. Each mussel can filter 5 to 10 gallons of water daily, but pollution and a changing climate threaten their existence. In recent years, many mussels have landed on the endangered species list. Back in 2019, reporter Brittany Patterson spent some time with a veteran biologist in West Virginia who reflected on her three decades protecting mussels. Janet Clayton is standing thigh deep in a back channel of the Elk River. Clad in a wetsuit and knee pads, the silver-haired biologist with the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources reaches into a bright orange mesh bag submerged in water. Inside are half-dozen mussels she plucked from the Rocky River bottom. This is called a long solid. As it gets older, it gets really long. Clayton holds an earthy-colored shell, about the size of a computer mouse, in the palm of her hand. And she easily identifies others. This is a pocketbook, a wavy rayed lamp mussel, kidney shell. Clayton, a West Virginia native, has studied mussels for about three decades. She began her career researching aquatic bugs, but quickly switched gears. Today, she heads West Virginia's Mussel Program, a program she helped build. Mussels are very important to the environment. In addition to filtering water, mussel excrement is a tasty meal for macroinvertebrates and benthic critters. Many mammals enjoy mussels as a tasty snack, and they help keep our river bottoms in place. They're also sensitive. Freshwater mussels are the most endangered group of animals in the country. Tierra Curry is a Kentucky-based scientist with the Center for Biological Diversity, which advocates for federal protections for mussels and other threatened species. Good water quality is vital to the health of mussels, and humans have not always treated waterways with care. Chemical discharges, excess sediment, and dams all pose challenges to mussels. So as we don't do a good enough job taking care of our rivers and streams. The freshwater mussels are on the front lines of paying the price for that. Today, scientists know a lot more about freshwater mussels and how to protect them. And a lot of that, Curry says, has to do with Janet Clayton. Janet Clayton is a total hero for freshwater mussels. Working with partners across the Ohio Valley, Clayton developed mussel surveying methods that have been widely adopted. Her team set up 26 long-term monitoring sites, like this one on the Elk River. On this day, four divers dropped their mussels at a folding table erected in the stream. Mussels tagged with little silver plastic stickers are measured. Then they're returned to the water. 
five years ago, Clayton and her team pulled hundreds of dead and dying Three Ridge mussels from this river. The cause remains a mystery. I'm concerned. I'm, I'm majorly concerned. Clayton is retiring next summer and says while in some ways the field has advanced, she fears some waterways will never again be healthy enough to support mussels. And new threats have emerged, like climate change and the growing natural gas industry. Mussels live for decades in our streams, so they're like the canary in the coal mine. If mussels are dying, which in this case they are, what's in this water? that's causing them to die. We need to wake up and pay attention to what's out there. For now, Clayton is taking every opportunity to spend time in the water, her preferred office. And she says she plans to stick around to train her successor. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Brittany Patterson. Brittany originally reported that story in 2019. If you feel like taking a deeper dive into our past reporting on water, head on over to wvpublic.org. There you can find stories about scuba diving in Summersville Lake, the folklore of river guides, and what it's like to live without clean drinking water. And if you have a story you'd like us to cover about water, let us know. Email us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Or call us and leave us a message. We're at 304 307-0551. Again, our number is 304-207-0551. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from the Southern Environmental Law Center and their podcast, Broken Ground. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. And Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us online on Twitter at InAppalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. My Twitter handle is at Miss underscore CTAN. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.